How dire are the threats to human civilization as a result of human-induced climate change? What impact could melting sea ice in the Arctic have on the global climate picture? If desperate times call for desperate measures, should we be contemplating geoengineering as a short-term safeguard against runaway global warming? What evidence is there that world leaders like U.S. President Barack Obama know about the looming collapse of industrial civilization and the near-term extinction of the human species? Why are environmental groups like 350.org and prominent activists like Naomi Klein part of the problem? On this week's Global Research News Hour, as the UN Climate Conference in Lima, Peru comes to a close, we spend the entire program with a leading scientific prophet of climate doom. Professor Guy McPherson returns to the Global Research News Hour. On this week's program, COP20 and False Solutions. Guy McPherson on the climate conundrum. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of December 12, 2014. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, Global Research. You can also now be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Was the price drop in oil a control measure by the U.S. to punish Russia? I believe, yes, this was our plan, but not the plan. As I wrote a week ago, we may have thought it was our bright idea, but I am sure the new Chinese-Saudi relations are as big of a factor, if not greater. Because so many different markets now begin to tell a story opposite of the official story, it tells me that control is now beginning to slip. It's like the Dutch boy with all of his fingers and toes in the dike. Leaks are springing up everywhere, and with each one, more control is lost. That comes from the article, Loss of Control, The Current Financial Bubble is Bursting, by Bill Holter, posted December 10th. According to Takayasu, the 1940s started well for cannabis farmers as the nation's military leaders, like those in the U.S., urged farmers to plant cannabis to help win the Asia-Pacific War. However, after Japan's surrender in 1945, U.S. authorities occupied the country and they introduced American attitudes towards cannabis. Having effectively prohibited its cultivation in the States in 1937, Washington now sought to ban it in Japan. With the nation still under U.S. control, it passed the 1948 Cannabis Control Act. The law criminalized possession and unlicensed cultivation, and more than 60 years later, it remains at the core of Japan's current anti-cannabis policy. That comes from the article, The Secret History of Cannabis in Japan, by John Mitchell, posted December 10th, originally appearing at Asia Pacific Journal, Volume 12, Issue 48. Are the public supposed to be surprised when the war between NATO and Russia starts? 
because it is already a hot war and it has already begun in Ukraine. It's being waged between the invading Ukrainian government proxying for Obama after his successful coup to take over that government and the defending breakaway region of the former Ukraine proxying for Putin because the Obama-installed leaders of Ukraine are dedicated to destroying Russia. NATO is preparing to invade Russia, but our news media are hiding these preparations and the earlier phases of these preparations have already spurred counter-preparations by Russia, which, unlike the precipitating events on our side, do receive press coverage in the West, because taken out of context in that way, these reports present Russia as if it were the aggressor, which it's not. The U.S. is, but the media controlled by America's aristocracy and their servants censor that fact out of their news. Is the news media collectively hiding the biggest news story of our time, the perhaps now uncontrollable build-up to World War III, with Ukraine serving as the bait, the pretext, and an eager staging area for an attack against next-door Russia? When are America's news media going to start reporting instead of covering up the biggest news story of our time, the likeliest build-up toward a nuclear war since the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis? That comes from the article, Why Are U.S. News Media Ignoring Important News? Western media is hiding war preparations directed against Russia. Why are U.S. news media ignoring important news? By Eric Zeus, posted December 10th. While the public was still riveted by wall-to-wall news coverage of the bombing, law enforcement began to speculate about the Zyarnev's involvement in the slayings. Tamerlan had been friends and an occasional martial arts and boxing sparring partner with one of the three victims, officials told the media. But the government's own story called into question the behavior of law enforcement officials in the same case. Despite the fact that Tamerlan's link to the murder victims was known then, it appears he was never questioned about the crime. This is just one of the many inexplicable mysteries surrounding Tamerlan's pre-bombing relationship with authorities. That comes from the article, Boston Bombing. Feds admit no evidence Zarniev brothers involved in the slayings. By James Henry, posted December 11th, originally appearing at Who, What, Why. I'm joined right now by Guy McPherson. The guy is Professor Emeritus of Natural Resources and the Environment at the University of Arizona, where he taught and conducted research for 20 award-winning years. His blog, Nature Bats Last, focuses on the natural world, with a particular emphasis on the twin sides of our fossil fuel addiction, global climate change, and energy decline. He's authored about a dozen books, including Going Dark, and his latest, Extinction Dialogues, How to Live with Death in Mind co-authored by Carolyn Baker. Guy has spoken across the continent and has recently conceived a weekly podcast, which, like the Global Research News Hour, airs on the Progressive Radio Network. So, Guy, welcome back to the Global Research News Hour. 
Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Yes, uh, likewise. Now, in addition to the bio I just read, I understand you can add certified grief counselor to your resume. I take it that's related to your less than optimistic predictions for the future. <laughs> yes, that's correct. Um, in January of this year, so almost exactly 11 months ago, I uh, attended a grief recovery workshop put on by the Grief Recovery Institute, um, and, and it was a train-the-trainers very intensive session, and I discovered something really important about myself. I, I, I went with the goal of trying to improve my own bedside manner because people were constantly pointing out to me that you can't just punch people in the gut and walk away as if nothing happened. You have to be a little more compassionate in your approach to dealing with people. I'm an uber left-brain scientist, the the ultimate rationalist, and I thought my entire life you just presented the facts and let people deal with them as they may, and then you just walk away. I've only relatively recently found out that that's a completely inappropriate way to act. It's like the medical doctor walking in to the exam room with a clipboard and constantly flipping the papers on the clipboard and never making eye contact with the patient, and then coming out and telling the patient, it looks like you have five, maybe six weeks to live, and I have to go catch some golf. If you could pay the receptionist on your way out, that would be great. Bye. Obviously, that's a horrible way to act. So I think I'm a little better at this now. Perhaps more importantly, what I discovered in the workshop was that there was a diagnosis for what was going on in my head, and that was grief. I was, I was grieving a whole series of relationships that had been dramatically altered as a result of my leaving my position as professor. And I was also experiencing anticipatory grief at a a much larger scale than most people are able to wrap their arms around. So it was really important to me, actually life-changing, which is not something that happens when you're my age very frequently. Hmm. Now, I, uh, I, I think I, there's a famous uh, um, process that's been described by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross about the five stages of grief. Uh, is that something that you've sort of witnessed yourself going through as you've come to these realizations about, uh, the, well, what you call near-term human extinction? Yes, absolutely, and I didn't even know that it was grief. I didn't have a label to put on it until I participated in this workshop. I, we, you know, we're, we're such a grief-denying culture and also a death-denying culture. And, and I was so firmly embedded within that culture that I didn't even know that, that what was going through my mind and, and ripping my heart out actually had a name, and that name is grief. And grief is essentially um, holding on to an attachment, holding on to a relationship that is is behind you, or at least is dramatically changed. And so I was wishing for a better past, and I kept holding on to that for far too long. Now, the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief, to which I've added a sixth, by the way, um, the, the five are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And I go in and out between those, as most people 
do when they experience grief. And when I was at the Earth at Risk conference um, about two and a half weeks ago, and I, I presented on my panel, and then award-winning journalist Darja Mail presented right behind me, and he gave a, a five-minute synopsis, essentially, of the evidence that leads us to near-term human extinction. And then he spent the next five minutes talking about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief. And, and as he was speaking with his excellent sense of humor and me with my twisted sense of humor, I realized there's a sixth in Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of grief. There's gallows humor. And so this is beyond acceptance. And that's where I am most of the time today. I, I, I remember from your talk here at, uh, in Winnipeg uh, just being very uh, – impressed by talking about how you talked about such dire consequences and with each slide you put forward it things just kept going getting worse and worse with each uh, you what you call self-reinforcing feedback loops and and, and I'll, I'll you know plug you on that in a minute but yeah you, you you did it with such humor you you had people in spite of everything uh, there there were people who were you know laughing and uh, you know Smiling in the face of what you were uh, what you were saying, so I was wondering, like myself included. So I, I find that, uh, like, did did it take you a while to develop that humor, or was it just sort of like a natural facet of your personality that you felt free to let loose with? That's that's an interesting question. It's one that Carolyn Baker asked me in our dialogue in Extinction Dialogues, the my most recent book co-authored with Carolyn Baker, is really a dialogue. And so she asked me, she, she said, I, I know she had a sense of humor and you, you bring it to the fore in your presentation. And has that always been there? Or is it something that has developed over time? And I seem to recall it always being there. Um, my father and my older brother have a real talent for telling stories and and a sense of humor was always important in the household I grew up in. And so it seems like it was always there. It was really, really sharpened to a razor's edge in my first academic position, though. After my graduate work and then my postdoc at the University of Georgia, I, I landed my first academic job. It was a fixed-term position at Texas A&M University is 100% teaching. And so this is one of the more conservative academic bodies in the country, probably on the planet. In, in fact, when I was there, this country held a presidential election, and 92% of the student body voted for George, George Herbert Walker Bush for president. So it was the only campus I've ever been on that the students were more conservative than the faculty. And... So that seemed surreal to me. But then what really, really triggered my stand-up routine was teaching to 150 to 250 undergraduate students who were non-majors. They were taking a, a, a fundamentals of ecology course to satisfy their science requirement. So it was either physics or chemistry or fundamentals of ecology and fundamentals of ecology well that sounds a lot more fun than physics and chemistry and probably a lot easier too so i'd have a bunch of business majors and petroleum engineers 
and people who were not even remotely interested in the natural world. They'd show up for my 9 o'clock in the morning class, and there'd be 150 of them. And the campus culture at Texas A&M University at the time, and I don't know, maybe still is, includes if the professor doesn't absolutely captivate you in the first five minutes in your morning class, you just open the campus newspaper you brought with you and start reading it. So what that means is I'm standing up there teaching, and if, if I'm not really good, it's perfectly okay in their minds to have 150 newspapers staring at me five minutes into the class. So that doesn't need to happen very many times before you realize that part of getting the message across is entertainment, too. It's, it's edutainment. And so I started doing stand-up tragedy early on in my academic career when I was, you know, 28 years old or whatever. And that just stayed with me and, of course, became increasingly refined over the 25 or 30 years it's been since then. Well, I wanted to, to get into the science with you. So, uh, I mean, like, feel free to incorporate knock-knock jokes or however you want to frame it. But um, the, the case for near-term human extinction, just to uh, kind of bring us um, up to date, I know that uh, you in- emphasized uh, a lot of the um, self re- what you call self-reinforcing feedback loops. You know, as in like the, the warmer it gets, the, there's a kind of a multiplier effect. And correct me if I'm wrong, you've identified about 40 at this point? Yes. Um, actually, I was just starting to do a little homework uh, when you called. And I think we're up to 42 that are irreversible and another couple that if we had the political will, we could turn them around. Wow. Okay. Um, now, we, we don't really have time to go into each and every one of those. That would require probably about five shows. <laughs> but uh, I, uh, but could, could we maybe just hit uh, you know, some of the more significant ones, if, if I could put it that way? Sure. And even before we go there, I want to point out that in May of this year, the International Energy Agency, this is a, this is a pretty conservative organization, um, concluded a six-degree C temperature rise uh, by 2050 with business as usual. So if we keep going like we're going now, they project six C temperature rise by 2050, and that doesn't include any of these self-reinforcing feedback loops. That only includes carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And bear in mind that we haven't had humans on the planet at three and a half C or more above baseline in the past. And so when the International Energy Agency starts throwing about terms like six C by 2050, that's that's quite significant. Paul Beckwith, in a video he put out right before he went to Lima, to COP20, concluded that we, because of one of these self-reinforcing feedback loops, we could actually have a 6C temperature increase within a decade or two. And he pointed out that that's not all that that far out there, considering the International Energy Agency can close six concludes 6C by 2050. Beckwith is concluding 6C in November of this year, uh, within a decade or two. So he's right. That's not that far apart from this very conservative um, organization's conclusion. Um, Probably the best known, the best studied 
self-reinforcing feedback loop is the one Paul Beckwith studies. And that's um, methane coming out of the Arctic Ocean. So methane has been bubbling out of the Arctic Ocean that, that was repeated, that was reported in August of 2009 in geophysical research letters that there were 250, about 250 plumes of methane hydrates escaping from the shallow Arctic seabed. And that was likely a result of a 1C rise in temperature regionally. So it doesn't take much of a rise regionally that is in the Arctic to cause the hydrates or class rates to start coming out of the ocean. And that's because those hydrates or class rates, those are synonyms, I'll just call them hydrates from now on. And, and those are chemical cages. The class rates are, are chemical cages around CH4 molecules or methane molecules. And it doesn't take much to, to warm them enough to release the methane out of the hydrate because they're at relatively shallow depths in the Arctic Ocean. As shallow is about 50 meters and perhaps all the way down to 700 meters or so. But, but we've known for a while now that we, we because of um, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we have greatly warmed the planet, including at depths in the ocean down to 2,000 meters. So it should be no surprise that we've warmed sufficiently in the Arctic to cause the class rates to start bubbling out of the Arctic Ocean. There's been a bunch of research done at this point on the methane coming out of the Arctic Ocean, including NASA's CARVE project, which in mid-July of 2013, mid-July of last year, reported several plumes up to 150 kilometers across. And um, according to uh, Natalia Shikova, also that same month, July 2013, um, she did an interview with Nick Breeze and reported really, really high levels of methane coming out of the Arctic Ocean in a wide variety of places. Excuse me. And so she's reporting this based on observations. As a consequence, interestingly enough, she and her work were widely disparaged by Gavin Schmidt at a Royal Society conference just a couple of months ago. Um, so that the modeler who took over um, James Hansen's position at, at the Goddard Space Science Center um, is disparaging the work of somebody who's actually collecting the observations because they don't match his models. And so that's the, that's the best studied and probably the most worrisome of the self-reinforcing feedback loops is methane coming out of the Arctic Ocean. And when we look at atmospheric levels of methane for the whole planet, it's pretty clear that they've gone exponential since about 2007, almost certainly as a result of that methane coming out of the Arctic Ocean, which is the really sensitive, um, worrisome place in terms of methane. Now, one of the uh, studies that I'm, I'm – one of the reports I'm hearing is that uh, we could see a complete melting of uh, uh, summertime Arctic Ocean ice uh, within the next year or two, 2016 or so. 
and that that's more that that's likely going to make even exacerbate further the problem yet another feedback loop absolutely um the british parliament in fact you know hardly a bunch of left left wing enviro nutcases several years ago predicted that the arctic would be ice free in september of 2015 uh, so that's next september the um, who was at the United States Nobel Postgraduate School predicted the Arctic would rise free in September of 2016, plus or minus a few years. And so both of those dates are obviously staring us right in the eye. Um, in 2012, when the Arctic sea ice cover collapsed to its all-time low, it looked like they might be conservative, but since then the the ice cover has recovered a bit, and so this year it was only at its sixth lowest level ever in September. But of course, when the when the Arctic is ice free, even in, only in September, which is when it has experiences its lowest ice cover, initially it'll just be in September, and it might be for a few days or a few weeks. But then in the years ahead, obviously that's going to ramp up because that's a lot of blue water soaking up radiation instead of white ice reflecting back the solar radiation. The albedo effect. Yes, the albedo effect. And, and, and it actually contributes to a number of things, not just albedo. There's albedo, which is the relatively obvious one. You're removing the white reflective ice and replacing it with dark blue water, which, of course, is absorptive. But in addition... Um, that open water allows for even a, a modest bit of heating that will release more hydrates, will re- release more methane from that area. And so the more methane, obviously, the warmer it's going to get first regionally and then globally because methane is pretty well mixed in the atmosphere. And maximum heating is achieved for methane in the relatively near term, like months or a couple of years, not a decade or more, as occurs with carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And then the third way that there's a contribution here is the thermohaline conveyor belt, or the Gulf Stream, which sends warm Atlantic water from the South Atlantic, shooting up through the Fram Strait off the north and east coast of Greenland directly into the Arctic. And, of course, that process accelerates once we have an ice-free Arctic. So the, the warmer it gets, the faster it gets warm. And the faster it gets warm, the warmer it gets. So, you know, whether it's 2015, 2016, or 2020 is really not all that relevant in the grand scheme of things. Basically, it won't be long until we have an ice-free Arctic. At that point, I can't imagine we can avoid the 50 gigaton release of methane that Shakova warns is highly possible at any time. That's a direct quote. And so once we have an ice-free Arctic, I just don't see how we can keep the methane monster under wraps. It's just difficult for me to imagine that 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 50-gigaton burst wouldn't come forth in a relatively short period of time when that happens. And that obviously wouldn't contribute to even more rapid warming of the planet in 
you know, we're, we're talking months or maybe years, not a long period of time in any event before we experience at the global level very rapid warming. So when Paul Beckwith talks about five or six degrees C temperature rise in a decade or two, this is the this is kind of event that we're talking about that could trigger that. And it's not it's not all that surprising when you consider that we now know, based on a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, that there was a fifty five million years ago there's a 5C warming at the global level over a span of 13 years. So that's from Proceedings of the National Academy of Science in October of 2013, a 5C temperature rise during a span of 13 years. That's huge. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's happened in the past without um, industrial civilization mucking with the system and, and triggering all these self-reinforcing feedback loops. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. I'd like it if you could just briefly, I, I think it's important to touch on this because I, I think there's been some misunderstanding of, of that that uh, the, the the process by which the warming of the poles has actually resulted in uh, a cooling uh like much colder winters uh as we saw with the last winter i mean big you know snowstorms in areas where they they're not used to it uh, you know very very cold weather and, and some people have misinterpreted that as meaning oh those climate scientists don't know what they're talking about the world's getting colder but no actually that's a measure of how much warmer uh, things have warmed up at the poles. Could, could you maybe help us understand what happened last winter to to cause that those, those strange temperatures? Yes, and Jennifer Francis is um, is really the pioneer on this topic. Her work has been fundamental in understanding what she calls the meandering jet stream and what has come to be known as the polar vortex or the Rossby wave. And the, the general idea is that the poles warm faster than the equator and faster than the global average. And one of the consequences of that is that it, the, the, the temperature gradient breaks down between the Arctic and the equator. So whereas when I was a kid, and I know the audience loves stories that start with when I was a kid, when when I was younger, and in fact up until 10 years ago even, when a cold front would, would blow through northern Idaho where I was raised, it would, it would start, go all the way through, drop the temperatures catastrophically, and be done in four days. And so these cold fronts would sweep across the northern portion of North America and they would complete the journey across the United States in three or four days. They would just whip across. Well, now because of this breakdown in the temperature gradient between the equator and the Arctic, we don't have those cold fronts just sailing through the so-called, what we call in Idaho, the Canadian Express. That's what the weatherman called it. And, and so we don't have that going on anymore. Instead, these, these fronts, because of the polar vortex, 
or the Rossby wave or the meandering jet stream, they don't just sweep across the continent anymore. They're locked in place. We had one last winter that was held up for three months. Three months this meandering jet stream was, was locked in place. And so that contributed to the massive drought in California that had and still has hundreds of people living in places that have no running water. The, the wells are suddenly not deep enough anymore. They've had too many straws in the ground for too long of a period of time. And so they've tapped out the aquifer deeper than the wells. And so for more than six months now, there are hundreds of people in North Central California who've been living without running water in the taps. And people wonder when climate change will start to affect them. Well, it's been massively underreported in the mainstream media, but climate change is already impacting uh, relatively wealthy white Americans. I mean, what's it going to take for people to notice that? So to answer your question, finally, in the most roundabout imaginable way, the breakdown of the temperature gradient between the equator and the, and the polar regions causes the jet stream to meander instead of forcing those cold fronts across the continent in a short period of time. And that produces all manner of interesting climate changes, including warm air being dragged up from Mexico and making it warmer in the east and, and middle eastern portions of the United States, warmer than usual, and colder than usual in the heartland or, or in the Dakotas and on up into Manitoba, where you are. And it's, again, it's climate change. It's not global warming. It's global warming that produces the change, but the changes are manifest in a variety of ways, including much drier in some places, much wetter in places, much colder in some places, much warmer in other places. So there's all kinds of changes that result from a slightly warmed planet, and they've been described for quite a long time. Jennifer Francis has been widely disparaged for her work, especially early on, but within the last couple of years, it's starting to gain some traction as the phenomena she describes are starting to have significant impacts on the way people live. So, good for her, I say. Mm. Guy, I wanted to uh, bring up something with you. I mean, you mentioned Paul Beckwith, and uh, I mean, he's certainly a, a leading uh, you researcher on the, this topic of the the Arctic melt and and the uh, release of methane, which is you know much more potent greenhouse gas than CO two. Paul Beckwith uh, he you know, acknowledges that those concerns about you know what this melting of the of you know, what what's happening this warming at the poles and the the consequences of that. But he is a I guess you could call a cautious supporter of geoengineering in the near term in order to try to prevent uh, you know because you know recognizes like this is basically the only thing that could possibly uh, at, at least buy us some time to to get a, to get our act together you know because if we don't deal with this right now it, it's it's game over um yeah, and so I, I think he's proposed measures just to to to, pr- to try to delay that heating of the of the polar ice cap could you maybe uh 
share your own thoughts about because basically, you know, it's like what we're seeing, what we've been seeing for the the last little while is all these burps coming up, uh, methane burps, if you will, coming up from the the Arctic, and now with the the melting of the Arctic Ocean, it's going to be full bodied belches. I mean, what what is the argument against some kind of the global equivalent of Pepto Bismol for Mother Earth? Yeah, the the primary scientific arguments against it are found in the refereed journal literature. And they they came in the wake of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's fifth assessment, which officially came out this year, but which was leaked in September of 2013. And this is among the most conservative scientific bodies on the planet, and their reports are significantly diluted, diluted under political pressure. And uh, in April of this year, Truth Out, I think correctly, headlined their assessment of the IPCC's conclusions with this, quote, intergovernmental climate report leaves hopes hanging on fantasy technology. And the, the IPCC points out in their report leaked in September of last year that only massive geoengineering of the Earth's atmosphere is likely to reverse global warming at this point. Since then, uh, five refereed journal articles have come out, at least five, five that I know about, starting with um, the December 5th, 2013 issue of Earth System Dynamics, uh, which points out, quote, climate geoengineering cannot simply be used to undo global warming. And quotes from a few of the other papers, attempts to reverse the impacts of global warming by injecting reflective particles into the stratosphere could make matters worse. That's from the January 8th issue of Environmental Research Letters. Uh, December 2013 issue of Journal of Geophysical Research, um, geoengineering may succeed in cooling the Earth, but it would also disrupt precipitation patterns around the world. Furthermore, risk of abrupt and dangerous warming is inherent to large-scale implementation of solar radiation management, as pointed out by the February 17th issue of Environmental Research Letters. So the bottom line comes from Nature Climate Change in uh, an issue published on June 25th of this year. And in that, a large and distinguished group of international researchers concludes geoengineering will not stop climate change. So their bottom line is that, uh, again, attempts to manipulate the Earth's climate are likely to either be relatively useless or actually make matters worse. And the most commonly proposed strategy for geoengineering is solar radiation management, or SRM. This is putting reflective particles up into the stratosphere. The problem with that is that as with a volcanic explosion, which puts a bunch of reflective particles up into the stratosphere, as soon as the particles start to fall out of the stratosphere, there is abrupt warming that occurs. So we've staved off the monster for a while, but as soon as we stop putting those particles up into the atmosphere, the situation gets worse than it otherwise would have been. And we don't understand the, the mechanics behind that, at least I don't. Perhaps some physicists understand it better than I do. But it's much like the dramatic increase in temperature we are likely to observe when sulfates 
when we stop putting sulfates into the atmosphere through burning fossil fuels. And going back um, a few years to a paper by James Hansen and colleagues, and more recently a paper out this year, indicates that those sulfates are constantly falling out of the sky. We're constantly adding to this, them to the sky, particularly in burning low-quality coal or high-sulfur coal. And so when we stop, we're likely to see a, a dramatic warming of, of one C or more in a matter of days because the sulfates are constantly falling out of the sky and by not adding them we are effectively removing the umbrella that is up there. And so we're talking about a matter of days, and this makes sense. There's a study conducted September 14, 2001, so three days after 9-11 stopped U.S. planes from flying, and that study indicated a significant variation in the Earth's global temperature signature three days after U.S. planes stopped flying. That's all. You know, we kept the coal-fired power plants going in this country. Planes were flying around the rest of the world. But because of reduced emissions from the United States, there was a significant alteration in the Earth's temperature signal. And so the, the primary problem I have with the pr approach promoted by the Arctic Methane Emergency Group, of which Paul is a part, is that they seem to be relying upon fantasy technology that has already been largely discredited in the referee journal literature. I think this is a case of desperate times calling for desperate measures and trying to maintain habitat for humans at all costs, even if, it, even if those costs include removing habitat for other organisms. And of course, there's also the uh, the law of unintended consequences. I mean, in non-scientific parlance, I mean, we don't know enough about the uh, the ecosphere to to know like what these how those particles may be interacting with, you know, other life forms. What's it's doing? What it's doing to the oceans and and so forth. Um, speaking of the oceans, uh, that's another aspect of it. I know that there's a lot of climate denialism, people talking about how the uh, – well, the, the, we're not seeing those increases uh, in atmospheric temperatures, but I don't hear them talking much about the increase in ocean temperatures, and, and it's been pretty dramatic over the last decade, if I recall our last conversation. Yes. There was a paper in Geophysical Research Letters published May 16, 2013, indicating that warming has accelerated in the oceans since 1997. Lots of the skeptics point to 1997 as the year when we had particularly high uh, land surface temperatures. And that's the only year that is among the warmest 15 years that predates this century, this millennium. But, but then you look at the the data and include the ocean's temperature, and of course the ocean is you know two-thirds or three-quarters of the surface area of the planet, and heating has actually accelerated since 1997. And it appears to have gone exponential starting at about 1997. So we can think of the ocean, the world's ocean, as being one large interconnected battery so a lot of carbon dioxide gets stored there. In fact, that's where most of the carbon dioxide we emit initially gets taken up, is in the ocean. And then later it is released into the atmosphere. 
and it's also a tremendous battery for storing heat. So, you know, we, we've known for a long time that we didn't just turn off the switch in 1997. That was an El Nino year, and during El Nino years, significant El Nino years at least, a lot of uh, heat is released by the oceans and is observed in land surface records. Well, we knew we didn't stop heating in 1997. It just took a while to figure out where that heat was going to. And it's pretty clear now, based on the journal literature since May of 2013, that the heat was going into the ocean and continues to go into the ocean. What that means is the next time we have a significant El Nino event, and, and it might be this winter, and it might not, it might be years down the road, that's going to produce profound increases in land surface records because so much heat has been stored in the ocean for such a long period of time and it's just sort of begging to get out. So yes, the ocean the ocean is a big deal and because we live on land we haven't paid it enough attention. And there's a friend of mine in Tucson who has a, one of these little placards in her kitchen that says, the ocean fixes everything. And that's, that's the mentality that we've carried into this whole thing. We can dump anything into the ocean. We can dump our carbon dioxide, our plastic, we can dump the temperature in there, the ocean fixes everything. Well, for a while, for a while the ocean fixes everything, and then nature bats last. Oh, well, when it comes to the ocean ecology, what have we witnessed in, in recent months or years that, that should cause us concern? Well, there's the, the profound amount of plastic that is in the ocean that is removing temperature, I mean, removing habitat for, for any number of organisms. We're seeing coral bleaching um, as a result of acidification. The acidification, the oceans have acidified in some places uh, 30%, which is a, a huge increase in acidification. Yes, the ocean remains alkaline, um, that is, its pH is above 7, but it is acidifying at a rapid rate, and according to the referee journal literature, um, it, that acidification could be sufficient to eliminate all phytoplankton. All phytoplankton in the ocean, that's the base of the marine food web, and it accounts for roughly half the food we eat. So getting rid of all of the, or, or even nearly all of the phytoplankton in the ocean is going to have profound consequences for any human beings that eat. And last I checked, that was pretty much all of us. I want to try to bring in the recent um, the conference of the parties uh uh, the, the COP20 talks happening at, right now in Lima. We're having this conversation on the final day of the COP20 conference. Uh, and I want to try to bring it in. I guess the lead-in would be uh, this quote from your book, which talks about the COP15 uh, climate change meeting. And I'll just read the quote. It says that um, followers of climate science will recall COP15 as the climate change meetings thrown under the bus by the Obama administration. A summary of that long-forgotten briefing begins with this statement, quote, 
The long-term sea level that corresponds to current CO2 concentration is about 23 meters above today's levels, and the temperatures will be 6 degrees Celsius or more higher. These estimates are based on real long-term climate records, not on models, unquote. In other words, Obama and others in his administration knew near-term extinction of human beings was already guaranteed. Even before the dire feedbacks were reported by the scientific community, the Obama administration abandoned climate change as a significant issue because it knew we were done as early as 2009. Rather than shoulder the unenviable task of truth-teller, Obama did as his imperial higher-ups demanded. He lied about collapse and he lied about climate change, and he still does. Do you uh, w- want to add to that? I mean, the, the, this basic, uh, basically saying that, that that quote is an indication that all the world needers know that we're done for, and they know they can't do anything about it, so just continue business as usual. Can you elaborate on that? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things there. Uh, they know, they know, and they've known for a long time. Every keystroke you and I type into any... Microsoft product goes directly into the National Security Administration, National Security Agency of the United States, and has since at least the year 2000. So that's coming up on 15 years. Every keystroke, even if you if you use the backspace, that goes in there too, and and it goes straight to that enormous data archive system in Southern Utah, and so. Of course, the high-ranking politicians of the world know about Tim Garrett's work, for example, which uh, he, he finished his signature paper in 2007, and it was published online in November 2009, published in print form in February 2011, and he points out that civilization is a heat engine Stopping the heat engine is the only way to prevent runaway climate change. Well, he, he finished up that paper in 2007, long after the NSA had been collecting information on every keystroke. Uh, of course, the Obama administration and every other, I would argue, every other um, high-ranking political body on the planet knows that the only, quote, solution to deal with climate change is complete collapse of industrial civilization. And there's, there's a couple of things to keep in mind here. One, the people who are living large, who are making a lot of money and have access to a lot of power as a result of the way civilization is constructed, are not going to be big fans of terminating this set of living arrangements. Collapse of industrial civilization is not high on their agenda. And secondly, it's not high on the agenda of anybody else, as nearly as I can tell either, or almost anybody else. There are very, very, very few people who would vote for the candidate who promises to collapse industrial civilization merely to save habitat for their children. I, I, I can't think of 100 people who would vote for that candidate, and I suspect that he or she would never make it to the main stage by promoting ideas such as those. So it's a politically unpalatable and probably even politically unviable position to tell the truth about climate change. 
So, of course, no politician is going to run on a campaign that will not get him or her elected. And anybody who does attempt to terminate industrial civilization, I suspect, would be tarred and feathered. First, by the people who really pull the levers of industry, the, the big the leaders of the big banks. And second, if, if they didn't get them all, then the people on the streets who have come to expect fuel filling station and food at the grocery store and water coming out of the municipal taps, they would be right behind the one percenters calling for the head of the politician who made the lights go out or allowed the lights to go out. Mm. Well, there is also, I mean, beyond the, those politicians uh, that you mentioned the, the, that are running for election, you do have these third-party groups like 350.org and the Green – well, yeah, uh, other green environmental groups. And, and they sound as if they believe that uh, you know we just have to take more emergency action, You know, kind of living embodiments of that, that expression by Santayana, you know, trying the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. That's the definition of insanity. I mean, do you have a, uh, perhaps a, a better uh, understanding of what, what motivates these groups who presumably have access to the same science that you and the Obama administration have access to? Or, or are they somehow just, uh, along with the rest of us, just getting swept up with, uh, I guess, false information? Well, you know, 350.org is funded to a great extent by the Rockefellers. That's big oil. So it should come as no surprise that they're promoting business as usual for all practical purposes, as is Naomi Klein with her latest book, This Changes Nothing. She's funded by, she's funded by big oil? Um, no, I'm, I'm not suggesting she's funded by big oil, but I'm, I'm suggesting that she is um, part of the system that is creating the problem. Industrial civilization is a heat engine, so promoting the use of tactics rooted in civilization to address a predicament created by civilization doesn't seem all that swift to me. And so this is, this is just more of the more of the same, we're within this system and we have, to, we have to tinker around the edges of the system. We have to reform. So these are reformers. So 350.org and the other big green organizations and Naomi Klein and her latest book, they're reformers. They're, they're trying to, to tinker with the system around the edges, but let's not turn off the heat engine, which is obviously what it would take to do anything, is to terminate the heat engine, which is industrial civilization. And and again, uh, people are are not interested in that, and especially relatively wealthy white people who are living at the apex of privilege. So trying to trying to convince people like those who had 350.org and those who write books um, and 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 benefit from selling those $35 books while pointing out the inherent dangers of capitalism. I don't think that that's the right path to take. And and we see more of the same at COP20, you know, from an, an article in Huffington Post. Here's a here's a quote. The deal being worked out in Lima is expected to create a framework requiring all nations to put forward plans over the next six months to cut their own emissions. But those plans will be determined by the nations themselves, guided by their own domestic politics, not by the amount of reduction that scientists 
say is necessary. And they are not scheduled to, to be enacted until 2020. So that's the approach that people living within civilization are taking because they cannot, honestly cannot see another way to live. If, you're, if you grow up in a system and that's the only system you've ever observed, you are the fish in the fishbowl. You don't even know there's water. And that's where we are. That's where we are. We're, we're living in this, in this system which provides considerable privilege to relatively few people and comes at tremendous cost to a lot of other people and also to every aspect of the living planet. But almost nobody who's living the privileged life can even imagine another way to live. And when it's pointed out to them, they think it's absolutely insane that there is another way to live. A way beyond death. A way beyond lights that come on every time we flip a switch. Well, Guy McPherson, I, I think we're going to probably have to close it right there. But uh, I, I do want to thank you for participating in this special uh, uh, climate collapse edition of the Global Research News Hour. I, I found that your uh, your writings uh, on on your blog, Nature Bats Last, is uh, it's been very informative and and helpful. I'm sure it will also be helpful as. <laughs> As dire as it may sound, uh, I, I find that that good that dose of truth to be uh, quite uh, healthy and and a real you might say chiropractic adjustment for the brain. Uh, so, th- thank you so much for uh, all your work. Uh, you've I, I find you've probably been one of my very favorite guests on the Global Research News Hour. So, thank you so much for uh, guiding us through these uh, troubling times. Well, thank you, Michael. I appreciate all that commentary, and I look forward to speaking with you again. For sure. We've been speaking with Guy McPherson, uh, Emeritus Professor of uh, Natural Resources and the Environment at the University of Arizona. His blog, Nature Bats Last, can be found at GuyMcPherson.com. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across the country. We are broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I am series host and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.